Welcome to Bread. Romans has been described as the fullest, plainest, and grandest statement of the gospel in the New Testament. It's why we've entitled the series, The Complete Works of God. In Romans, we have the Christian manifesto in all its breadth. Ultimately, it's a manifesto to the freedom Jesus has come to bring. So that's what we'll be going for, freedom for everyone. Uh, we are in our final um, uh, talk on the series of Romans, and um, this is, if you have been tracking, uh, kind of Paul's got to uh, the application of all this theology that's gone before, which basically sort of has its culmination, the theology in chapter 8. Because of Jesus, there's therefore no condemnation for anyone who is in him. And not just that, not just are we restored and redeemed uh, to him, we are um, given his spirit so that we might live not by, as uh, people of the flesh, but as people of the spirit, that we might have him coursing through us, that we are not alone, that he is with us and that he is transforming us. He gives us the fruit of his spirit, all the good things of character, and he also gives us the power of his spirit to actually do things in this world that bring his kingdom more and more fully alive to every single person. And so Paul then ends the letter with, so given all of this, how are we as Christians supposed to relate to people? How are we supposed to relate to God? How are we supposed to relate to each other? How are we supposed to relate to our enemies, which Hannah talked about a couple of weeks ago? Uh, How are we supposed to relate to the state, uh, which I talked about last week? And then finally, um, today, he does the last two chapters, really, on uh, how we're supposed to relate to the weak and the strong, uh, which we'll come on to in a minute. But that's where we've got to. And um, Alicia is going to read to us all of chapter 14. And, no, uh, he, she's going to read a little bit of chapter 14, um, which kind of gives an overview of the whole argument, um, 14 and 15. Accept him whose faith is weak, without passing judgment on disputable matters. One man's faith allows him to eat everything, but another man whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The man who eats everything must not look down on him who does not, and the man who does not eat everything must not condemn the man who does, for God has accepted him. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One man considers one day more sacred than another. Another another man considers every day alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. You then, why do you judge your brother? Or why do you look down on your brother? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, As surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will confess to God. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and approved by men. Thank you, Alicia. So um, that's various verses from chapter 14, which gives an overview of the argument. Uh, Some preliminary questions as we kick off then. What is the weakness that Paul is addressing here? Well, for Paul... Weakness is not um, a weakness of a will here. 
It's not as if um, people that he has in mind here are um, constantly giving in to temptation because of a lack of Holy Spirit-fueled self-control in their lives. It's not a weakness of will, and it's not a weakness of character, as if the people he has in mind keep behaving terribly on account of a lack of Holy Spirit-fueled character in their lives. If it had been either of these, a weakness of will or a weakness of character, no doubt Paul would have been more forthright in his critique as he is at other parts in this letter and as he is throughout his writings. Surely he would have said, stop behaving like your fleshly selves with your weak character and your weak will. Be people of the Spirit, he would say. Cooperate with what God is doing in your lives and redeeming you to be the people he always created you to be and then be full of the Spirit and enjoy all the fruit that being full of the Spirit brings. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. But this isn't what Paul is saying here. He doesn't come down like a ton of bricks on the weak. He is, in fact, gentle and forgiving and even accepting of them here. And that is because the weakness that they are displaying is not a weakness of will, it's not a weakness of character, it's a weakness, verse 1, of faith, except those whose faith is weak. Their faith is weak because they have not fully believed or they've not allowed themselves to fully believe in all that Jesus brings. Specifically, these people, their faith is not strong enough to allow them to believe in and therefore experience the fullness of Jesus' freedom for them and the fullness of his freedom specifically as it relates to their pre-existing religious beliefs and practices. So preliminary question number two, who then are the weak in faith people that Paul has in mind? There's a very similar passage to this in uh, Paul's earlier letter to a different group of Christians in Corinth. There, Paul is addressing a group of Christians who were former pagans. Now, these former pagans, he says, are weak in their faith, evidence of which is seen in them refusing to eat meat that has been offered to idols. Uh, They, I presume, go to the meat market. They say to the meat butcher, Hello, Mr. Meat Butcher, I would like a leg of lamb. And the meat butcher man says, or woman, uh, or gender neutral, uh, uh, says, here is a um, leg of lamb, would you like it? And they go, wait a second, has that been offered to idols? Was that sacrificed to idols before it was chopped off? And he goes, oh, yes, it was. I don't want that one. Uh, Can I have a non-idol one? It's just me role-playing. The idea being that if we eat this, we might get a bit of that residual paganism infecting us. We might be defiled by it. Now, Paul says this is weakness in faith. And he says something similar, but it's a slightly different group in view here in Romans. The weak in their faith Christians in Rome are actually Jewish Christians, not previous pagans. And these Jewish Christians are continuing to believe in the importance of various Jewish religious practices and customs. Specifically, they are only eating kosher food and they are observing Jewish religious days like the Sabbath and others in their calendar. Verse 2, one person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. And presumably they were eating only vegetables because they wanted to be ultra-cautious not to eat any meat at all, lest some of it they didn't know about was not kosher. And verse 5, one person, i.e. the weak person, considers one day more sacred than the other. Another, the strong person, considers every day alike. They're just days. Now, to be clear, these Jewish Christians are not legalists. 
They aren't insisting that observance of these customs is necessary for inclusion in God's people. Paul has addressed such legalism at other times in his letters, including in this one, and he has absolutely no time for it at all. In fact, he reserves his most venomous and aggressive attacks for those, particularly in Galatia, who are insisting on circumcision and observance of Torah being essential to inclusion in God's family. So, if you don't have a lot of time on your hands and you really want to um, evoke Paul's ire up in heaven, if you want to get him really angry, do a spot of legalism, he will absolutely hate that. Uh, He doesn't like it at all. But legalism isn't the problem for the weak here. Paul is not being venomous. He is not being aggressive. He doesn't correct or pass judgment. Instead, he says things like verse 1, accept, don't quarrel, don't judge these people. Verse 3, don't show them contempt. Verse 10. For Paul, the weakness in faith is evidence that these people are simply immature in their faith. They're untaught. They may not even know anything better. They are mistaken, of course. They are wrong, 100% wrong, as becomes apparent as the argument develops. And yet, Paul says they should not be rejected. They should not be ignored. They should not be reproached. And at least for now, they should not even be corrected. So let me be very, very clear once again. This isn't Paul excusing a weakness of will. It's not him excusing a weakness of character. It isn't Paul suddenly being okay with boastfulness or with sinful behavior or with judgmentalism or orgies. He never is for any of those things. It is Paul being patient with a weakness of faith. The issue is one of not quite believing or not quite believing enough. It is not willful disobedience. So therefore, how should we treat people who are weak in the faith like this? Paul says we should accept them. Verse 3, why? Because God has accepted them. To be a Christian is, no matter how strong or weak your faith is, to have been accepted by Jesus. And acceptance by Jesus is not dependent on how much faith you have. It is not dependent on how strong that faith is that you have. It's based simply on whether there is any faith at all whatsoever. Even if it is a teeny, tiny, little, bitty, tiny, little, little bit of faith, that's enough for God. He will work with that. Why? Because the Christian life isn't accessed by what you do. It's opened up to everyone by what he has done. We are justified, we are made right, we are accepted because he has justified, righted, and accepted all of us. All he needs from us, all he needs from you is just a tiny, tiny little bit of belief that that has actually happened. That's all he needs. Jesus has destroyed everything that holds you back. Everything that holds all of us back from him. All the death and evil all the sin and shame, every last ounce of brokenness, of dirt, of the past bits of our lives we struggle to even want to think about at all and try and avoid as much as we possibly can. He has destroyed it all. 
He nailed it to the cross. He killed it off in his body. And he is raised gloriously to say, now life can be made with me without any of that, if you want it. Verse 9, Christ died and returned to life so that he might be the Lord, the Lord of both the dead and the living. Jesus is to be the Lord of everyone and everything, dead, alive, past, present, and future. Not so that he can then lord it over us, not so that he can then make our lives miserable, but rather so that he can lord it under us, so that he can lift us up, so that he can set us free from all the things that are bringing death to our life, because we don't need to experience it anymore. And all he says is, just put a little bit of faith, as much faith as you can. Even a tiny little sliver is enough. I will work with that. So just believe. Now, obviously, Jesus wants our faith to grow to the size of an oak tree, of a huge, how big are mustard bushes? Are they bushes? They're probably not that big, are they? Okay, let's go with the biggest tree in the world. That's what he wants to grow our faith into. As we often say, faith is the magic with God. So also, don't settle for a little sliver of faith. You want to try and grow your faith to as big as it could possibly, possibly be. Imagine what you might then do and see with lots and lots of faith. Prayers answered. Lives restored. The lame walking. Ever seen that? The blind seeing. Ever seen that? The oppressed set free. Ever seen that? Now, faith is not something that we desperately try to work up in ourselves, like, I'm really going to have faith today. Today, I have decided I will have faith. I'm going to do it. We can't faith ourselves into faith. Rather, faith is like a muscle. The more we use it, the bigger it grows. Faith comes from taking God at his word, actually believing the things in the Bible as someone uh, who is much cleverer than me once said, we're very good at believing in Jesus. We're less good at believing Jesus. Would you like to actually believe him, what he says? Do not worry about your money, about your success. Do not worry. Faith comes from actually taking him at his word and then living like we believe it. Um, I was in a lunch restaurant. It's just a restaurant. Uh, <laughs> I was in a restaurant. Uh, it was like a cafe, though. That's why I found it difficult to call it a restaurant. It was a cafe. That doesn't matter. Uh, I was in this place uh, a couple of weeks ago, and uh, I was sitting there having lunch by myself, and I um, was praying, actually, while I was there, and I felt like God say um, something to me about someone else who was there, who was minding her own business, having a very nice lunch with her two friends. And I felt like God say something. And I was like, oh, for goodness sake, I'm just trying to have my lunch. Uh, which was wildly overpriced. It was Earth, I've got this bugbear, Earth Cafe. It's the worst place on Earth. <laughs> Never go there. Anyway, I was there. I went there by accident. Uh, but God speaks there, so maybe do go there. Anyway, I was, I was in this room, and I felt like God said, you should go and talk to that girl. And uh, I went, I don't really want to do that. 
and uh, but I felt he kept on saying things to me, so I I, I went up and what what I said to her was, I said, I'm so sorry to inter interrupt your lunch. I'm a Christian. Sometimes I feel like God speaks to me. Would you mind if I just say to you what I thought God said to me? And she looked a bit scared, and her other friends looked a bit scared. And I said, don't worry, it's going to be fine. Uh, and I, I didn't actually ask, let her answer. I just went ahead with it. <laughs> and I said, um, well, one, Jesus really loves you. Uh, two, um, you, he does not count you out because of your gender. Um, so don't let anyone else count you out. Three, you're a leader. And he really uh, thinks you're a great leader and he wants to just fill you with courage so that you can lead better. And fourthly, and this was the main thing, you're doing some research. Uh, I didn't know anything about her. You're doing some research and it's um, really important research. And God loves that research and he's, he just wants you to know that he's fully in it. And then I said, I hope that's okay. Um, was that encouraging? And she just started crying. And she said, that's, that's amazing. Thank you so much. I, I'm actually a Christian. This is, this is wonderful. This is really, really encouraging. And then I got out of there as quickly as I possibly could. <laughs> now, the point is, whose faith was really affected by that? Now, no doubt hers, I hope, because it seemed to make a lot of sense to her, did. But for me, I was like, oh, wow, God is real. I'd forgotten that. <laughs> Makes it a lot easier to do it. Since then, I've just been praying that God would speak to me about other people that I could talk to. And who knows what might happen. Yet, Paul's point here, even the weakest of the weak belief is enough to start with. And it means that you're welcomed into God's family. We are, verse 10, called brothers and sisters. And we are, verse 4, fellow servants of God. So then, Paul says, accept the weak and faith ones, but not just that. Do not judge them. Who are you, verse 4, to judge someone else's servant? To their own masters, servants stand or fall. So whether anyone's faith is strong enough, it is not yours to worry about, actually. It's for God to worry about. And also, everyone's faith is strong enough anyway. They will stand. Why? Because the Lord is able to make them stand. So just get over yourself. It's fine. Accept and don't judge someone else's faith because God has accepted them. They're your brother and sister. It's not your place. And also, you've got enough problems of your own, don't you? Verse 10. You then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or why do you treat them with contempt? For we all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me and every tongue will acknowledge God. So then, each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Have you ever noticed how easily we betray our own state of mind or heart when we're commenting on other people's state of mind or heart? She's so judgmental. Cannot stand judgmental people like her who are so judgmental, judging everyone the whole time. She's saying, judgy, 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 judge. Hate her, judgy person. Ugh. Can't stand judgmental people. I, I seem to have developed this slightly annoying habit, bad habit, over the last few years. Um, fortunately, I have a wife uh, who is able to point this out to me whenever it happens, which is very kind of her. Uh, my bad habit is this. Why are you so angry this morning? I'm not. 
this you are, you're really, really angry. Why are you so angry? I don't like it when you're angry. I'm really not angry. You seem to be a little bit angry. Do you think you might? No, no. And then she'll say something like, I think you might be angry. And I'll go, yeah, maybe I am. But so are you. I'm really not. Uh, and then we'll work out why I'm angry, and we'll deal with it. It's great. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> it is tiring, but it's also the Lord's work. Uh, <laughs> we have to answer for ourselves, says Paul. No one else. So let's stop passing judgment on other people's faith, shall we? Especially when our own houses aren't quite in order. And perhaps, may I suggest this to us, when we are saying that no one else is good enough, we actually might just possibly be revealing that we, deep down, don't think we're good enough. That we might just be saying we don't like ourselves very much. We're not very pleased with everyone else because we're not very pleased with ourselves. Possibly. The solution to this is always to go to Jesus. Remind yourself what he thinks about other people. It's very disconcerting. He really likes them. And remind yourself what he thinks about you. It can be really disconcerting. He really, really likes you. So we're to accept the weak in faith, we're not to judge them, and finally, we're also to go out of our way not to cause those who are weak more problems. Verse 13, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. So Paul is absolutely clear here. All food is clean. There's no problem there. The Christian can eat whatever they like. We will not be defiled because Jesus has cleaned us, has taken all defilement away from us. Nevertheless, Paul says, whilst this is the objective and complete truth, if someone still thinks that food is unclean, it is actually unclean to them. And this subjective truth is actually true. Verse 14, I am convinced, says Paul, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in itself. But if someone, anyone, regards something as unclean, then for that person, it is unclean. Very relativist of Paul. Given this, he says, be respectful. If you're with someone who believes, for example, that Christians should not drink, or, as one of my friends uh, told me, that when he was at university, a very uh, pious Christian told him, you should not go to the cinema as a Christian because, it's obvious, isn't it, sin, imar, has got the word sin in it. This is not a joke. This was at Oxford University. You shouldn't go because it's got sin in it. Now, if you are with someone, for instance, who doesn't believe that Christians should drink or that you shouldn't go to the cinema, and then you drink in front of them or you invite them to the cinema, it's going to cause them some anguish, is it not? It shouldn't, obviously, ideally, but objectively, it shouldn't, and yet subjectively, it could. And because it could, says Paul, do not do it. If your brother or sister is distressed 
by what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Do not by your eating destroy someone for whom Christ died. The destroying thing I don't think is supposed to be taken literally though. You are right to know that all food is clean. You're right to know that drinking alcohol is okay for Christians. You're right to know that it's okay to go to the cinema and it's not going to defile you. But your rightness about these issues pales into insignificance in the light of the wrongness of your lack of love. And in this, Paul is in fact making a hugely significant theological point. Something which actually underpins the whole of the Christian faith. Here it is, let us not miss it. In God's economy, truth and love are not of equal value. Love is not the other side of the truth coin. Love is not on one side of the scales being balanced out by truth on the other. In God's kingdom, in his economy, they do not nor should they try and balance each other out. Rather, mercy triumphs over judgment. Rather, love knocks the scales over. It breaks the mint that is making the truth coins and it creates a whole new economy that is fueled by the mold of grace. And so it is possible to be entirely right, completely on the side of truth, and yet paradoxically at the same time be utterly wrong and ungodly. And we know this to be true, don't we? By extension, it must be possible to do the opposite, be entirely wrong and quite thoroughly Jesus-like at the same time. Isn't that strange and so terribly offensive? I have a little bit bugbear about Christian uh, worship music. It's not little, it's huge. Uh, but often we'll sing songs um, where, and I, I basically I've banned so many songs, it's really terrible, because uh, I don't think the lyrics are right theologically. Sometimes they're kind of a little bit wrong, and sometimes they're a lot wrong. The problem for me, though, is that God seems to use them. He uses these songs that aren't quite right. So annoying. Now, this, all of this, is not, of course, to dismiss the vital importance of truth. Jesus is the truth. Christianity is the truth. Christians are people of the truth. We are called to speak the truth in love, and the truth is, of course, that which sets people free. Truth is vital to Christianity. You do not have it without it. But from a Christian perspective, the truth is not a concept. It's not a philosophical idea. It's not a belief to ascribe to. It's not a doctrine to get right. Truth is not a creed. Truth is not a statement of belief. Truth, from a Christian perspective, is always and only ever a person. Truth is someone to be met. It is someone to be related to. Truth is someone to be experienced. And as such, truth can only ever be known through the unconditional love of our Father in heaven who has given us truth, himself, in Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, right into your heart. Truth is a person. Jesus is the truth. And so without him, you can be as right as you like 
but you will not have love, and so you will be more wrong than you ever know. Verse 17, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating or drinking, but of righteousness, of peace, and of joy in the Holy Spirit. Here is where we see the stark contrast. The loveless truth of eating and drinking laws and the love-filled truth of God's kingdom. They are like chalk and cheese. They could not be more different. Righteousness in this kingdom isn't just the right standing before God. It is also the ongoing experience of the believer, a rightly ordered life. It is a life of right thinking. It is a life of right believing. It is a life of right uh, feeling. And it's a life of right behaving. Peace is the quality of life that the universe and its people were always supposed to have. It just isn't just the absence of war and strife. It's also the active presence and work towards justice. Joy is something deeper than happiness. Happiness comes from the English word hap, uh, where we get the word happenstance. Happiness is about what's happening, what circumstances are going on in our lives that make us happy. Joy is miles deeper than that. You can be a joy-filled, spirit-filled person when everything else is going terribly in your life. That's the joy that comes from the Spirit. It supersedes all circumstances in our life. And these are the quality of the kingdom that God wants for us. But they will only, they will only ever be ours by means of grace. The grace of God's Holy Spirit, poured out, pressed down, flowing over onto all flesh, of more of which in a minute. But to end, I've talked, um, as Paul does, from the perspective of the strong people, how we should treat the weak people. Did you automatically put yourself into one or other category? Most people put themselves in the strong category. Yep, I'm strong. Interesting, isn't it? Now, of course, there's nothing wrong with placing ourselves in the strong category. If it's true, that's actually where we must place ourselves. It's not arrogance. Uh, Rather, Paul says, I am a strong one, and he addresses this to the strong ones so that we know how to deal with the weak ones. But I wonder whether, just to end, it's worth considering other ways in which we might reveal ourselves to be a little bit weak in our faith. Good? Good. For example, how is your faith on these things? Do you believe you're actually forgiven? Like actually, like 100% completely, utterly washed clean. No semblance of any unforgiveness at all. Just all gone. Do you believe it? Do you believe that God actually likes you? Not just loves you, of course he loves you, but actually enjoys you. Enjoys who you are. All your quirks and weirdnesses. Enjoys spending time with you. That he's interested in you that he considers you a really good use of his time and attention? Do you believe your past doesn't need to define you? Do you believe that God wants to use you? That he actually wants to bring purpose and meaning to your life? That he wants to shower you with his gifts? That he wants to fill you so that you could be of purpose for him in his kingdom? Do you believe that? Do you believe that he hasn't somehow overlooked you. That you are not somehow the special case, the one person, the one 
the one who God just can't find it in himself to actually really care about? Do you believe that he knows best? That giving up your ideas for your life and putting your whole life, all of it, every single little aspect of it in his hands is actually the best thing that you could possibly ever do. Do you believe that? Do you believe that just a bit more money, fame, success, power is actually not going to change or make your life in any way better? These are all very basic beliefs that Christians should have about themselves and God. They are, after all, the message of the Bible. But most of us, from time to time, do not always strongly believe them. What about these? Here's some more. I know you're enjoying this. Do you believe that Jesus loves terrible people? Do you believe that Jesus forgives terrible people over and over and over again? That even when they don't change, even when they actually get worse, he's still there welcoming them with forgiveness and opening arms? Do you believe that? Do you believe that God knows better than you what other people need? Do you believe that other people, even brand new Christians, even people whose lives are an absolute mess, far more messy than yours, could actually teach you some things about life? Again, these are very basic beliefs that all Christians should have about other people. But I imagine that from time to time we don't all believe these things all of the time that our faith, in fact, is proved not to be completely strong all the time. So it's worth bearing that in mind. But can I encourage you, in the light of this passage, and not to contradict it, to not stay there. Do what it takes to move from weak faith to strong faith. Don't be tossed back and forth by the feelings or weird teachings of other people. Don't suddenly think, oh, wait a second, this might not all be true. Get yourself in a place where you know it to be true because God is meeting you and take him at his word and let him instill in you all these things so that you don't need to worry about this list at all. Don't settle. For want of a better phrase, which I get in trouble with saying the whole time, grow up. Back to the strong. Okay, strong people. Do you err on the side of judgment? Or are you open to receiving and therefore being able to give out of a place of love, of God's love for you? For instance, and I want to do a little mini-series on this, about what it means to be part of a Sunday experience of church, what we're actually trying to do here. I'm going to do this after Easter. But just um, by way of introduction, what happens to you when you come here on a Sunday morning? Are you asking or saying things like, I really hope they play that song. I really hope they don't play that song. Are you saying things like, she led communion so well, much better than he did. Are you saying things like, I really love this sermon series. This is my favorite book. This is the one I want. This is the good one. Or why on earth is he speaking about this? Or whilst I'm listening to him, I, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to agree, but I just cannot get past that. That piece of theology is just wrong. It's wrong. I would not have applied it like this. Or my personal favorite, I really hope this particular person is hearing this right now. 
I really hope they are hearing this. God, with your big God hands and power, could you open their ears so that it gets into their brain? Please, God, do it. That person, this, that one, right there, that one. Get him. Or are you walking into church saying things like, Jesus, I'm here. What do you want to talk to me about? Do you say, Jesus, I'm here. How do you want to use me today? Now, I'm not saying that there isn't a time and a place for the former types of questions or concerns. They are valid and of some importance. I'm just saying, deal with those after you've done the second bit. Jesus, what do you want to say to me this morning? After you've done that for some time. And by some time, I mean years and years and years and years. Here I am, Jesus. What do you want to tell me? Here I am, Jesus. How do you want to use me? That is the only possible way that we can get anywhere towards the kingdom of God, which Paul is talking about here, where it's not a matter of sidebar positions on rightness and wrongness, but of righteousness, peace, and the joy of the Spirit. And that makes church fun. That means that you will be changed. You will see other people be changed because you're here going, here I am, here I am, let's go. Let's do this. Let's use me. Let's speak to me. Let's change me. Please, God, I beg of you, do it, and then let's see what would happen. Good? Good. Amen. Would you like to stand? So at the end of all of our services, we pray for people here at the front. What we're doing is we are trying to take seriously the New Testament. We are, with our actions and our beliefs, reflecting what we think the gospel says, which is, we are here, good humans, loved by God, infinitely loved by him, can never be plucked from his hands because of everything that he's done. We have just responded, but here we are, and we are saying that we want to do this thing, this Christian life, seriously. We want to take it seriously, and we want to be changed. We want to be healed. We want to be restored. We want to be empowered. We want to be filled with his power so that we can actually not keep flitting around with the stuff that we've been flitting around with for years and years and move past it and actually maybe affect people with God's kingdom, maybe experience God speaking to us so that we can speak to other people, maybe that we can pray for healing, maybe that we can do all of these things, but basically we're coming to the front and going, here I am, I need some help, could you help me? Okay, that's it. And then we are asking the Holy Spirit to do whatever he likes, which is often reminding people that he's real, that they're known, that he cares about them, that he sees them, that they're not lost in the cracks. It's also reminding them that they're forgiven, that they're loved. It's also healing the past, things that keep sort of dogging us that we wish weren't with us anymore and it's also about being filled with his presence and his power how much more says the father 
Will I give my Holy Spirit to everyone who asks? And Jesus' commission to you, as it is to every single Christian who's ever lived, is this. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. And Jesus breathed on his disciples, saying, Be filled with the Spirit. And now, go and do the things that I did. Preach the good news. Heal the sick. Cast out demons. Freely you've received. Now freely give. If you are not doing that, you are not doing the Christian thing. I'm so sorry. I'm sorry to burst any bubbles. But that is the Christian message. That's the Christian mission. Now, we're all starting at different places. But the more we can actually get on the tracks of the train that is leaving the station in the way of God's um, kingdom, the more we will actually experience his kingdom both in our own lives and in the lives of the people that we love. Wouldn't that be fun?